Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 17. John 17, we're going to be looking at three verses, 17, 18, and 19. And let's stand for the reading of God's words. And while we're doing that, kids, do you know why we stand when we read God's word? We do it out of honor for the word of God. We do it because that's what the church has done throughout history, to honor the word of God. It's a privilege to have this, so we stand as we read it. So if you're able, please do so with us, and I'll read these verses. Verse 17, our Savior is praying, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be with the preaching of your word. We ask that you would use an inf- a very fallible and very imperfect preacher this morning that your truth would come across clearly, that your love, your grace, your strength, your mercy, your justice, your wrath, your holiness, your perfection, your eternity, we would grasp these things insofar as you've placed them in these verses. Lord, may we, may we get down to the marrow of this text, and may it change who we are and how we live to be more like Christ, to be more Christ-like, We'd be more clear as to what we are to be and how we are to live and how we are to be about your work of kingdom health, of kingdom expansion. We thank you for including us in this. We thank you for this time. Please use it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you could tell from those verses and then our reading earlier, well, the topic that we're dealing with today is holiness and truth. That's what Jesus has put in these passages for us. He's closing out his prayer for the 11. If you remember how the high priestly prayer breaks down, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the the 12, or just the 11, in the room there. We also see ourselves being prayed for in those passages, but we see ourselves most clearly in verses 20 through the end of the chapter when Jesus prays for everyone who has yet to be born, let alone yet to become a Christian. But as he's closing out this prayer as he, that he directs specifically at the disciples, in these three verses, here three times. In Greek, it's the Greek word agiazo, or hagiazo, which we get holiness, saint, sanctified from. It's a verb. It means to make holy, to sanctify, to set apart, or consecrate is how it's translated in verse 19. One theologian says that the word means to set apart from the world by actual sanctification of life so that in heart and mind and thoughts, words and deeds, one begins to live more and more in accordance with the law of God. That's what that word hagiazo means, to live more and more in accordance with the moral revealed law of God, who God is to set apart, to sanctify. Three times in those three verses. Also three times in these three verses is the word truth. It's just the Greek word aletheia, which just means truth. Truth and holiness is coming out of these three verses like water out of a fire hydrant. So we need to stop and drink at these things. Now, pursuing holiness and truth, we know, is despised by the world. We know that. We see that. We see that exceedingly growing, that a moral lifestyle looks suspicious to our world. 
why are you like that? Why are you living like that with a negative connotation in their minds? What we have now is truth claims are hate speech. What do you mean to say a dog can't be a cat? A dog can certainly be a cat. You hate all cats because you say a dog can't be a cat. That's hate speech. Any kind of truth claim is narrow-minded, is bigoted. And resistance, any resistance to the, the common consensus in the world, which you could call the cultural zeitgeist. Kids, that's a word to ask your parents about at home. Zeitgeist. They're going to have to Google it. Any resistance to that is deplorable. Deplorable by any notion of purity is despised. I mean, just think about the, the media we intake of shows or movies or whatever. The idea of purity, keeping yourself pure or a purity ring or a purity pledge is mocked and scorned as foolish and to be despised. Even a hint of affirming absolute truth is loathsome. How can you say that's always true? So we know that our world has no taste for holiness and truth. But that distaste has seemed to also kind of creep its way into the church. It seems like when the world sneezes, the church catches a cold. That the disease outside oftentimes finds its way inside. So professing Christians are becoming allergic to objective truth. Well, I don't know if that's always true. We start leaning towards relativism. Truth is relative. We kind of define it. And any pursuit of holiness is chided in the church as being arrogant or legalistic. And it's today as if the church is seeking the world's approval more than God's approval. We really want those who are not in the church, who have no love for Christ, to like us. And we're not so concerned about whether or not God approves of us and our lifestyle. We don't want to be accused as being zealots or extremists or science deniers or self-righteous pietists in some way. We don't want to be called those things. So what we do sometimes in the church is just, we just maintain a big, wide berth all the way around holiness and truth. We don't really want a whole lot to do with it. It just seems too high-minded, too narrowly focused, too aggressive or bigoted or anything like that. Well, Sproul commented along those lines in these ways he said talking about himself hardly a day goes by that i don't hear someone say doctrine doesn't matter what matters is relationships we say that in the church all the time when this bro goes on to say if church, if doctrine doesn't matter then truth doesn't matter and if truth doesn't matter our sanctification or holiness doesn't matter because sanctification doesn't come through relationships our sanctification our holiness comes from the word of god and from the truth that is poured into our souls, truth that renews our minds, renews our thinking, renews our lives, that truth in turn defines godly relationships. You can't have a godly relationship without being in the truth. You can't even know what a godly relationship looks like without understanding the content of the gospel. Doctrine does matter. Holiness and truth, it matters. Christ is praying it for his disciples, and he's praying it because that's who he is. That's who God is. God is holiness, and he is truth. I mean, what would, we, what would Isaiah say if we asked him? What do you think about God? Well, he would go back to his experience in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. 
He writes down, in the year that King Uzziah died, he remembers the year. He remembers what's happening at that time. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Just the, the end of God's robe filled the whole temple. He couldn't even see. Above him stood the seraphim. Those are angels, kids. Seraphim means angels. Each had six wings. These angels have six wings. Two covered his face. Two covered his feet. With two he flew. He's covering his feet and his eyes because he's too impure to look on that holiness and his feet are too impure to step down on it. And two are flying and keeping him up. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in that scene, how does creation react? What says in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, meaning God's voice, and the whole house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine this scene of a robe that's so big, it's filling up the whole room. There's smoke everywhere. There's angels flying around with six wings. Only two are actually being used to fly, and they're saying the same thing over again. And when God speaks, the whole building shakes. And what does Isaiah say? He doesn't say, I want to know you. I want to see your face. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Better interpreted, I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. My cells are not staying connected anymore. For I am a man of unclean lips, meaning I'm a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, meaning everybody I know and the people I'm from are sinners. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's overwhelmed with the holiness of God. He knows God is holy. Now, what if we asked John, the same John who wrote this gospel, John, because he saw Jesus. And his glorified state in another book called Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He collapsed on the ground when he saw Jesus. But Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive evermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. And then later on, John sees something else about Jesus in chapter 19 and 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war and goes on to describe him as being the word of God and is the avenger of God. So if you asked Isaiah and you asked John two things that they know to be eminently factual about God, he is holy and he is true. They know that from experience. They've seen it. And Jesus, in these three verses in John, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy. That's what that word sanctify means. Hagiato. Make them holy in the truth. That's the whole three verses are about that concept. He's praying it for his lovingly, praying for his disciples. That's what he explicitly wants for them. Let's see why he explicitly wants that for them. Our first heading is this. We are to be holy and set apart. Same word, holy and set apart mean the same thing. But you see that in John 17, 17, sanctify them. And then you see it in verse 19 where it says, that they also may be sanctified. Make them holy, have them be made holy. That's God's, Jesus' prayer for his, uh, for his disciples, for us, his desire for us. This is his will for you. Often as a pastor, the question I get is, uh, what's God's will for my life? Do I go to Burger King or McDonald's? It's usually something like that. 
What is God's will for my life? Do I go to this college or that college or take this job or that job? What's God's will for my life? Do I marry her or marry her? What's God's will for my life? And oftentimes what I want to do is like, let's just go to the Bible and see what it says. This is God's will for you. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, at least in part, what God's will for you is. For this is the will of God. Here we go. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. You becoming holy. That is God's will for you. No doubt. You don't have to doubt that for the rest of your life. You know God's will for you to be sanctified, to be holy. No doubt what Jesus wants you to do. He wants it so badly for these 11. He's praying it for them right in front of them. And he wants it so badly for us because we're just men and women like they were. It was a matter of prayer to him then and it still is now. So what we see Jesus saying is sanctify, make them holy, set them apart, consecrate them, make them different. Make them unique, make them other, make them stand out, set them apart from the rest. They're not to be for common use. When God is describing how Moses is supposed to order things in the tabernacle, which is the place of worship that becomes the temple, he says, set apart these things. Don't use this fork for anything else. Don't use this plate, this candle stand, this table, this tent, this building, none of it for anything else but what for worship. Set it apart, make it holy. And that's what Jesus is praying for us. See, contrary to the prevailing wisdom of popular evangelicalism, which says, just be like everyone else in your culture. Just be exactly like them. Show everyone that Jesus is just like them. He can be your bro or your homeboy or your friend or your boyfriend if you're lonely. He can do anything. He's just like you. No, he's not. He's not like us. And neither are we like the world. We just saw that last week. See, the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now, should not look like what people do every day of the week all the time. Because what we're doing right now is different than what we do every day all during the week. It's supposed to be different. But what's crept in is like, man, I'm just going to be real. What God wants is realness. So I'm going to come looking like I just got worked over in the dryer full of razor blades to church because I just, I don't care. It's just, I'm going to be real. A lot of times what we mean when we're real is we mean sloppy, tardy, and unconcerned. Now, what if you dated your spouse like that? Hey, honey, let's meet up at the restaurant at 8 o'clock after work. Oh, that sounds great. Get there. It don't show up till 930. Would you feel like, oh, he's just being real. That's who he is. That's who she is. Or you show up on time, but you're wearing that T-shirt that you've had since high school football practice. It's got the, the hole right here pulling off the collar, but it's got your number on it, and you remember where you were on the field when you scored that. So you got to wear that shirt. And then you got your cut-off sweatpants on with oil stains because you were just changed. Come to the date. She's all dressed up. Would she go, oh, he's just being real. That's who he really is. Now she gets it. That's who you really are. But I want this to be special. I want this to be different. And what about, uh, you know, the, the concept of a lot of church buildings? They just be whatever. Just throw it up there. Bare bone. Doesn't matter. Just make it look like any other warehouse that exists because we're just trying to look. We don't look offensive or weird or, or stick out. But do you do that with your own house? Do you do that with your own room? I just want my room to look like the display at, at Ikea. Just make it look like the display room at Ikea. Just generic photos of random white people I, and, I just, and couches that are always, I just don't, just, I don't want it to look anything different than anybody else's. 
I don't want the mood to feel different when you come into our bedroom. I want it to feel like everybody else. I want it to feel like every other place that you could ever be. No, we decorate our houses to affect something. I know many women in this room think about the foyer. What do people think when they open the door? <laughs> oh, they feel warm, welcome, shabby chic. They feel like Shiplap and Joanna Gaines is here with us. That's, I want you to feel something when you come in. Why? Nobody feels anything except for maybe dread when they go into Walmart. Just make, it, just make it feel like that. No, I want it to be different and set apart. Why? Because it's my home. It's set apart. We're to be set apart on purpose. Jesus is praying for that. Unbelievers should come to church knowing that they don't belong, but leaving desperately wanting to belong. They should come thinking, I was just eavesdropping on a conversation that I wasn't a part of, but every fiber of my being wants to be a part of that conversation. And I know I wasn't, but I want to be. How do I become that? They should be intrigued and drawn by the differentness of church. This feels different. But what we're trying to do is make everything as low as common denominator as possible. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of friends, older and younger and my age, who have left the, the big box churches or the or people trying to be like that, and they go to the old, dead, liturgical mainline churches. Why? And their answer is always this. It just feels reverent. Now, they're going there, and, and there's a sign of their immaturity because there is no preaching, there is no exaltation of God, there is no right worship, but it, they still follow the liturgy. So it feels reverent. They come in carrying the staff or they have the robes. Everybody's quiet. You got to know what to do. There's no, nobody trying to be the latest rock star. There's nobody up there trying to just give a really good Apple keynote address. It feels reverent. So they go. I'm tired of just being pandered to. I want to feel different. I, I have people that I went to seminary with who are at churches that are denominations that are apostate just because they're sick of the nonsense. Now, it's a bad reason to be there, but I understand it. We should be different. We must not become unacceptable sacrifices. We all know Romans 12, 1, it's a familiar verse when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's how they're described, holy and acceptable so if we have to strive for that, then what can we then be? Holy and un unholy and unacceptable to God. And it's our spiritual worship. Spiritual is better rightly translated your, your uh, expected, your obvious worship. So we're supposed to be different. We've got to let go of the fear of being called holier than thou. I don't want to be all holier than thou. Why do we fear this? Do you even know anybody like this? I think it would be a struggle for us if we passed a note, or a, a pad around the room, write down somebody who you think is really holy. Write down somebody who is holy. I mean, could we come up with anybody? I mean, does more sin make us more relatable and approachable or even pleasing to God? I mean, does, does it, a lack of concern over our sin prove our Christian maturity? I'm so mature, I don't care about impurity. I don't care about unholiness. I think our obsession in evangelicalism with brokenness has led us to this place. It's stunted our growth. I'm broken, you're broken. I'm st I stink, you stink, we all stink, but Jesus is awesome. But what are all these commands about? Why is Jesus praying? Make them holy. I'm dying so that they will be holy. 
But we're like, ah, we can't be because we're all broken. If you want to write a bestseller right now, just fit broken or brokenness into the title as many times as you can, and you'll make a hundred grand. Because that's all. It's just. It sounds like great. Yeah, we're all. And it sounds somewhat mature. But what we're really in in evangelicalism is just a state of arrested development. Everything is youth group. Everything is just hang out and be chill with the J man. Whereas Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I reasoned and spoke like a man. I grew up. We're not making people grow up into holiness. We should boldly be known as pursuing holiness because Jesus is praying it for us. We don't take any pride in our growth. That's the problem. We don't take any pride in our growth. And I can't go, look, I've made myself holy. We can't do that. Our standard is infinite holiness, and so wherever you get, you just look at infinity above you. So we have no pride in any of that, but we shouldn't be ashamed of pressing on in sanctification, in becoming holy. And if people call you holier than thou, you should know this. It's most likely coming from insecure, stagnant Christians or tares that are among the wheat. It's not an accusation that Jesus would ever say. You're pursuing holiness too much. He's praying it for us. He wants it for us. And our, our beloved brother Peter, who was in that room, he writes in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, as obedient children. You hear that, kids? It's just like what you do. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter's quoting Leviticus there. See, holiness is something that we pursue because we're commanded to, and it also, oddly enough, not oddly enough, prepares us for heaven. Have you thought about that? All that is in heaven will be pure, will be spotless, will be blameless, will be sinless. All good will be walled in. All evil will be walled out. All impurity, all things that were pretty good but not all the way good, they're all out. That's not in heaven. Heaven knows no stain of sin. There's not the smallest granule of iniquity in heaven. It is purely, exhaustively, authentically holy. Heaven is. So are all the beings that are there, the created beings and the one uncreated being. Holiness. So now, if you have no taste, desire, or affinity for holiness here, what makes you think you will enjoy heaven? That's all that's there. I, th I think sometimes we think that, yeah, I'm living like this, and I know it's not great, but when I die, I'm just going to be changed into something that I'm not. And, and I'm on the right team now so that when I die, then I'll like those things. Or we're thinking, well, I know there's only two options. It's heaven or hell. And between those two, certainly I'm going to choose heaven. But what holiness is doing is preparing us for where we're going to be. That's all that's going to be there. If pursuing holiness is drudgery to you here, what makes you think heaven is a place for you? I hate pursuing holiness. I hate having to kill my sin. I hate having to understand God's word and apply it to my life and live in a way that's like Jesus. Then why would you want to go to heaven? That's all there is. That's all that's there. If you don't want holiness here, why do you want heaven? Because that's what it is. 
none of the sinfulness or worldliness that you enjoy here will be in heaven. You'll hate it there. Therefore, you will be just miserable in heaven. That means you're just not made for it now. So you need to consider, am I truly the one that Jesus is praying for? Have I bowed the knee in submission to him and given my life over to him, repented of sin and trusted, thrown myself on the mercy of Christ? Because if you have, then that you're amening Jesus as he's praying this for you. Because we pursue holiness in part to prepare us for heaven. We want to live like we, now like we will live in heaven. We want to love things now that will actually be in heaven. We love a lot of stuff now that won't be there. We want to reject now what will be excluded from heaven. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on those things. Give your mind and your time and your money to those things. In Colossians, he says something similar. Chapter 3, verse 1 and following, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, meaning if you are a Christian, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what we're being trained for, prepared for, made for, and we want to conform to. I want as much of heaven now as I can have. That only comes in the pursuit of holiness. J.C. Ryle said it like this, Holy trains Christians for heaven. The nearer we live to God while we live, the more ready we shall be to dwell forever in his presence when we die. Our entrance into heaven will entirely be by grace, not of works. But heaven itself would be no heaven to us if we entered it with an unsanctified character, meaning one that has nothing of holiness. Our hearts must be in tune for heaven if we are to enjoy it. There must be a moral readiness for the inheritance of the saints in light as well as a title. Christ's blood alone can give us a title to enter the inheritance. So we are saved by grace alone, he's saying and affirming. But sanctification must give us a capacity to enjoy it. If I want to enjoy heaven, I should enjoy heavenly things now. For not only to be holy and set apart, our second heading is that we're to be that's to be done by and through God's word. See those verses continue. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then 17, 19, that they also may, may be sanctified in truth. It's one thing to hear the command, sanctify them, be holy, pursue holiness and grow in that. But how do we do it? By what means do we pursue holiness? What will make us holy? How will we know God's definition of holiness? By submission and devotion to the truth. That's how. We're going to be made holy by the truth. What sets us apart from everybody else is the truth. The King James says in these verses, sanctify them through the truth. The NIV says by the truth. And then our ESV says in the truth. And so does the NASV, all these different translations. It all comes down to this little pesky Greek preposition in. Epsilon nu. It looks like an, a weird E and a V but it's E-N. And it can be translated by, in, or through, and for our purposes, we should see all three here. By the truth, in the truth, and through the truth is how we're sanctified. Nothing but the truth will make us holy and set us apart. Because Satan's the father of lies, is he not? 
and he's in control of all these systems and, and world systems under his power. And when we chain ourselves to the truth and we don't move, we stick out. That's why Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. There are times, and there have been plenty of times, where the church and the world are at peace, seemingly. It's okay to be a Christian. But there are times where that rages in opposition. Our commitment to the truth must never waver in that raging. Jesus prays for our sanctification to come through the truth, but we ask with Pilate in chapter 18, what is truth? When Pilate's talking to Jesus in John 18, he says, what is truth? We have an answer for that. Pilate didn't want an answer. Jesus prays for our holiness to come through devotion and submission to the Bible. Your word is truth, is what he said. The word of God is what he calls the truth. Not your word is true as an adjective. Your word is truth as a noun. Big difference there. Because if it's just true, then that means there's something else that's the actual standard that the Bible conforms to. There's some other our, 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 uh, objective level of truth, and the Bible conforms to that. No, the Bible is the truth. It is the ruler, not the thing that the ruler confirms. It is the truth. Now, this would be the perfect opportunity to get on the soapbox for the quiet time. Get in your Bible, read your Bible for yourselves, lay the guilt trip on everybody for the lack of Bible reading, advertise Bible reading plans, put them up on the screens. I'm not going to do any of that today, though I am an advocate for the personal quiet time. But look at the context. Jesus is talking to who? Eleven blue-collar first-century men. None of them had a Bible. None of them. Because to have a Bible, I mean, look how thick this is, and most of this is Old Testament. You had to put it on papyrus if you were if you had going the cheap route, and papyrus was weak and brittle and would crack and break and it'd be worthless. So if you really wanted to make a count, you'd put it on animal skin. You'd tan it real thin, put it on animal skin. Nobody could afford that. So you would collectively all give to your synagogue, and the synagogue would have scrolls of the Bible on animal skin that would last. That's why you have an entire class of people, the clergy, the Pharisees, if you will, memorizing the Bible, because they don't have any to take around with them. It, there's no pocket scroll that you pull out and just kind of unroll it. Otherwise, you have to have massive pockets. So you have to memorize the whole thing if that's your job, that's a priest, because the Bible stays at the synagogue. So Jesus can't be saying, this is a demand for personal quiet time. Get in your Bible. Nobody has a Bible in print until 1440s when Johannes Gutenberg creates the movable type printing press. Nobody has the Bible in their language in Europe until the end of the 1500s. So did this command just not apply to people for 1500 years? Or is Jesus commanding something else? Because while I can't see in the New Testament a direct command, you have to read your Bible by yourself every day on your own, I can find plenty of commands for preaching and for teaching and for gathering together under the ministry of the word. See, what evangelicalism has done is shorten the sermon, cancel the evening service, and hide behind the concept of the priesthood of all believers. There's nobody special. There's nobody that matters. Everybody can read the Bible on their own. And what I want to argue is that that just feeds American individualism, and it allows lazy pastors to make guilt-ridden congregants to, too ashamed to admit how little Bible that they actually know. 
Our kids are being lost to the world, and what are we doing? We're relying upon ridiculous youth leaders instead of Bible-enriched, trained parents. Where I'd poll you right now, just to make a poll, and we're not going to do this because that's not the intent. I'd poll you right now and ask a couple of questions. How many of you are satisfied with your amount of personal daily Bible reading? Or to ask a question along, how many of you read the Bible more than an hour a week? That's at least 10 minutes a day. Or do you feel competent explaining the Bible to a child, to an unbeliever, to a friend? How regularly do you read and discuss the Bible with your family? Were I to do that, how much guilt could we pour on to all of you? Just buckets and buckets of guilt. It would be easy to do. I wouldn't have to prepare that much for this message, and I could just make you all feel terrible. <laughs> and just walk out the room. Because everybody would answer, not as much as I want. At least say, not as much as I want, on all those questions. All I have to do is say, well, how much time do you spend on your phone? How much time do you spend on your TV? How much time do you spend hunting or golfing or fishing or knitting or crafting or kids little leaguing and balleting? I could just go on and on and on, and it would just make everybody feel guilty. I wouldn't break a sweat, and you'd feel, oh, pastor got after us today. Woo! I'm going to get it. I'm going to read my Bible for a solid week, and then you quit. I think this is the actual status. I think most Christians are the Ethiopian eunuch. You know what I'm talking about? Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, Philip has this great ministry. He's preaching in Samaria. People are coming to Christ in droves. And then God just says, you're done there. I'm sending you to one guy, an Ethiopian eunuch. He works in the, in the palace of the queen of Ethiopia. He had enough money and enough status to be able to leave there, go to Jerusalem, and go to worship. And God takes Philip from that massive revival to this one wealthy guy who has a copy of God's word. And he's sitting in a chariot reading it after a worship uh, feast Passover in Jerusalem. And Philip is told to go to him. And in Acts 8, 30 and 31, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. When you hear somebody reading the Bible out loud, do you think evangelism opportunity? No, you think, good, I don't have to mess with that guy. Like, he's probably fine. Not, not Philip. He runs up and then he asks this question. What does he say? Do you understand what you're reading? And then what does the eunuch say? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Is that you? Do you read and read and read and you just say, I, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me? I mean, this eunuch is honest. He has what most Jews don't have a copy of God's word, and he has Isaiah 53. That's the chapter that he's reading. That's the chapter that we read at Christmas. That's the chapter that we read at Easter. It's all about Jesus. It's plainly, obviously, Jesus. It's the most gospel-centered passage in the Old Testament, perhaps. But yet, he doesn't even understand it, and he's reading it. He, has his, he can keep reading and reading. He didn't hear a sermon and not remember it. He's reading it, and he doesn't understand it. So I ask you, are you hungry for someone to guide you into understanding of the scriptures. This is the truth that Jesus is praying that we're sanctified in. Have you ever shouted in desperation, how can I unless someone guides me? I have no idea what any of this is about. But I read it and I don't know it and then I give up. This is why I think we're expository preaching and ministers of the word. You know what I mean when I say expository preaching? Kids, you hear that word? Expository? Ask your parents what that means. 
expository preaching. That means you just go from the text verse by verse so that you, you can't skip things that are uncomfortable and just try to keep everybody happy. We'll go through it. And you can't skip things that you maybe just don't care about as a pastor. You've got to preach it. All word, every word preached. We need that. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Jesus is saying to have given shepherd teachers. That's a hyphenated word, shepherd teachers. They pastor and they teach. They pastor and they teach to do what? Verse 12 says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It doesn't say saints equip yourselves for the work of the ministry. Therefore, we should expect our pastors to labor in what the apostles said they could not forsake. Prayer and the ministry of the word. We can't feed tables. These widows have to eat, Acts chapter 6. But it can't be us because we have to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The Synod of Dort, this reformed council that met in the Netherlands, they, they came up with a conclusion saying this for that state church that was then in the 1600s. The evening service should be held even if it's just a minister and his family because somebody needs to get up and preach. I heard one minister say church members should be asking their pastors to prepare three sermons for them on the Lord's Day. The Puritans were in a consensus that if you had an hour of Bible intake, what would you choose? Sitting alone, just you, Jesus, and your Bible? Or would you choose to sit under the preaching of the word from a qualified, biblically qualified, spiritually gifted, educated, trained, holy preacher? And they said in consensus, we'd always choose to sit under the preaching of God's word. So we need to say together as a church, everybody, the whole church at large, away with pastors who plagiarize 20-minute TED Talks and away with sermonettes for they only serve to make Christianettes. We must demand that our preachers give us more Bible. Teach us. We must understand and know. Who cares if they're charming or a type A CEO? Do they know God? And can they tell us more about him? That's why this sticker said he would see Jesus, not you, not your talent. Jesus, we demand that as the church. We can do without well-oiled administrative machines, but we cannot do without the word of God given to us in an understandable way. We can't do without that. For our holiness depends upon our grasp and obedience to the word and Jesus has prayed for it so therefore we should pursue it we are to be holy and set apart like Jesus was you see that in verses 18 and 19 as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth how was Jesus sent into the world that's what he says you sent me and I'm sending them in the same way how is he sent he's on a mission we know an explicit purpose. He's not a casual bystander looking for the good life. So if that's what we're doing, we're not living like Jesus. So we know that, he, that he's sending us in the same way. He came to die. He's living for life after death. Peter calls him, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, in his own words, came into the world in at least three broad categories. I'm not going to interpret these. I'm just going to read them. I don't need interpretation. This is just Jesus talking. The first category is the judgment of the reprobate. It's another word to ask your parent, kids, your parents' kids. No, kids don't ask, your parents don't ask your kids that word. You don't, they don't know it. The judgment of the reprobate. John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, 
that those who do not see may see, and those who, may, who see may become blind. Luke 49 through 51, Jesus speaking, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So Jesus' first category is judgment of the reprobate. Second, he came for the salvation of the elect. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that me may not remain in darkness. John 6, the bread of God, that's Jesus, the bread of God, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. To the world. Luke 19 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to do that. Judgment, salvation, and then lastly, the proclamation of the truth is why he came. John 18 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Okay, he's about to tell us the purpose he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Judgment, salvation, and the proclamation of the truth. What did Jesus do? That cliche phrase that caught fire in the 90s and is nostalgic now. What would Jesus do? It's cliche, it's trite, and it was reduced down to generic moralism. Would Jesus give that panhandler five bucks? Would Jesus have been nice to that mean person? But Jesus told us what he came to do. He came to tell everybody that there was judgment coming that he is the way of salvation, and to proclaim the truth, and to then die to make it all possible as the sacrifice. He told us what he came to do. Judgment and salvation, law and gospel. Here's all the law. You'd failed to meet all of it. But I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone who comes to me goes to the Father. So you're guilty, but I save you. I save all who believe. That's what he came for. We know what to do then. If Jesus says, I'm sending them for the same purpose, then we go and we just tell the truth of judgment and redemption. We don't obscure judgment for sinners, and we don't obscure salvation for the guilt-ridden. We tell them the truth. That's what Jesus said. The way I was sent, I'm sending them. Father, I'm praying for that. And then he sees that he was holy, so we could be holy. Do you see that in verse 19? For their sake I consecrate. That's the same word, hagiazo, make holy. He made himself holy. Why did Jesus set himself apart to God for that holy sacrifice as a high priest and as the lamb on the altar? Why did he do that? So that what? Verse 19, they also may be sanctified, same word, in the truth. His desire for you is that you be holy. And not just for your sake. The holiness is for your happiness, but for the glory of God. Jesus prays to be sanctified and made holy by his word. We couldn't be holy if he wasn't holy holy if he wasn't a perfect spotless lamb then we could not be holy and be saved in exodus 28 the priest his clothing is is described it has a turban it has this breastplate of gold with 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes it has a linen ephod and then a robe over it and it's described all the way but there's one thing that the priest wears that makes it absolutely obvious what he's supposed to be he has supposed to have a gold plate that's on the turban over his head that says, Holy to the Lord. That's what, he was, that's what he was supposed to be. Now, it's a miracle of God's grace that he could say that any sinner could have that title. But you're set apart for that. Jesus comes as the perfect high priest who actually is holy to the Lord. 
And every sacrifice that the Old Testament priests offered up on the, on the altar was flawed in some way. There's no perfect animal, no perfect specimen. You're just giving the best that you have. But Jesus, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, is perfect, is holy. He's both of those for us. And Hebrew, Hebrew 7, 26 and following describes him like this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. You're not really a high priest. You're not really holy. But the law appoints them and their weakness as that. But the word of the oath, meaning the promise of God, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's our high priest. That's why we pursue truth and holiness, because that's what Jesus is. Why would we be ashamed to be like our Savior? Why would we run from a descriptor, holiness, that he earned for himself? It should be our honor to pursue holiness. And why would we disregard what our Savior openly proclaimed? The truth. He openly proclaimed the truth. Why would we disregard that and see it as unimportant? It should be our joy to know, embrace, and proclaim the same truth. And why would we negatively presume God's commands to be drudgery? Is God not loving? Doesn't he love us? Doesn't he want the best for us? So therefore, holiness is happiness. Because that's walking in what God says he wants for us to do. That's the way of, of happiness. Ralph said those that walk with God most closely are those that walk most comfortably. And then lastly, let's think of this. This is the last thought. Who are we to have such a loving Savior to pray for us? I mean, I, spending so long in this chapter, I know it's been long, but you're just thinking, Jesus is praying. He's praying for us. I mean, who are we to have a Savior that says your name in front of God every second of every day? He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's praying the best for us. He's not just repeating nonsense or cliches that he's developed. He's infinite, praying for us. And this is explicitly part of what we know his prayer is to be for us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he speaks our names attached to that request every second of every day in front of God Almighty. We are the most privileged of all people. Father, we thank you in light of that great privilege. We, we see a text like this, Lord. We know that we fall short. We know that we aren't as holy as we could be or should be. We know that we get racked with the guilt of our sin and that we wrongfully carry around that guilt as if we could do anything about it. And we forget or we make light of Jesus having paid it all, even for the sins that we just did or we're doing now. So forgive us for that. Forgive us for not believing in forgiveness, even though we know that we are forgiven. Lord, we are, we are sinners, but nevertheless, we know that you have called us to be holy. You've given us that command. You prayed it in front of those 11 men, minutes before his sacrificial death. So we know that it's possible. We know that it's possible that to be sanctified in your word. We know that your word is understandable. May we always, as individuals and as a collective corporate body, 
be given wholesale to this pursuit of holiness and to this unwavering chaining down to the truth. We have nothing to be insecure about in a world that hates us, in a world that suspects us, in a world that accuses us. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be embarrassed of. When we can see the most vile enemy of you turned into one of our very own, a church member sitting right next to us. If the Apostle Paul can be converted, who was of the world, in the world, hating your people, openly seeking their death and execution, you, you, you changed him. You changed him in a minute, in an afternoon, so much so that other Christians didn't even believe it. Lord, we, we long to see that. We long to see people who hate you that level become believers, that we don't even believe it in our own, our own frailty. We don't believe that. Conversion can be that real. We want to see that. And we know that we can by just pursuing holiness and truth, by holding it out, by living lives that are different, by not being ashamed of the truth, but giving it out to everyone, imbibing it deeply in us. Lord, I pray for the fathers and the mothers in our church that we would pour deeply into our children these words. You've given us this time with them, and may we use it. May we pour into them the truth of your word. Lord, may this pulpit in our church, whoever fills it, never say anything but the truth, never advocate anything but the commands of Christ, and never extend forth anything but your Son and repentance and faith in him as the way of salvation. And may that ripple out into all of us, into all that we are, all that we do, all that we believe, all that we affirm, and all that we avoid. May we be guided by your truth. Lord, I thank you for each young boy and young girl in this room. Thank you for giving them to their parents. Thank you for bringing them into these families. I pray for each of their hearts and for each of their souls that if they have not yet trusted in Christ, they have not yet turned from their sin, rejecting all that sinfulness has to offer, and trusted, believed, fallen upon Christ, knowing that he will catch them and love them forever, that they would do that now. And they would have that conversation when they go home with their mom and their dad. And that this church might be a place that they can grow and be nourished alongside their parents and families. That, that would, this, this would just be a generational place, a generational gathering. Father, we are just, we're, we're consumed and, and we're so grateful to be included and sent on the mission that your son came for. We know we fall short. We know we fail. We see that. But we ask that you would strengthen us to be faithful in going on the same mission, that we'd be embarrassed of nothing in the word, embarrassed of nothing in the life of a Christian. We would admit our sin to even people who don't believe in confession of sin. But we'd hold forth the gospel to them, and we'd always do that. Father, you are good. You are the Father of lights, as James 1 says, and every good and perfect gift comes from you, and you don't change like shadows do on the ground. There is no shifting shadow with you. So we thank you for this good gift of John 17, verses 17 through 19. May you sink them deep into our hearts, and may we go forth, smiles on our faces, hope in our hearts, the truth on our lips, and clarity in our minds. 
And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.